You're listening to Stealing the Blinds, a weekly poker podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and guests in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, Digging Up Gems with James Splitsuit Sweeney. Hello, Jordan. How are you doing this week? Hey, I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, I, I have a confession to make, though, this week. Um, remember a while back, you had uh, mentioned my beard, and I told you that I had shaved it because my wife said she missed my face? Yes, I, I remember that. Yeah, I now have to confess. There's some truth I have to share. I, I had to shave that beard off because I knew that that beard would never be as magnificent as the beard that adorns the face of our guest today. This guest, uh, if you take and you look up poker on YouTube, you're going to find this person. He's going to be the number one name that comes up. I'm pretty sure he puts out more material than anybody else. Our guest today is James Splitsuit Sweeney. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it is a, it's a pretty big beard. How big was yours? It was bigger, but it did not look nearly as beautiful. And I know that Jordan had some questions about beard maintenance. Fire away. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all good for poker and also beard conversation at all times. I so uh, I have trouble growing a uh, beard. It comes in like patchy. Some people have said like you got to maintain it as it starts. But I mean, it, it really just I don't have like the volume in, in certain areas or whatever. But shout out to uh, Firekeepers in Michigan. There's a dealer there who has this very well maintained and groomed beard where he like shaves under the chin so his beard and he like straightens it so his beard looks like a curtain draping his chin it's like super cool i was curious if you've ever entered a like beard competitions or even thought of it i've seen them i've looked at them and i it's it's so cool to see like turning a beard into art but i'm like there's just no way in heck i could do that because you have to grow like if you want to do like a specific kind of art then i feel like you have to grow your beard in a way that you wouldn't want it to look on a daily basis but would look very cool for a competition or a photo shoot or something and i'm like ah no i'm just going to grow it the way that i know how to grow it and that's all i can do but if you're at all interested in growing a beard uh, i'll give you the same advice i give everyone you have to commit to looking like for at least six months. It's going to be patchy. It's going to be terrible, but just grind through it. Keep using a lot of conditioner and six to 12 months is usually what it takes. Then you can start getting something. Those patches do fill up most of the time. I kind of go the backwards route on that. I look good after about two weeks, six months down the road, I turn into a satanic Santa looking guy. <laughs> Gee, so six months, I've never put in that much time. So that does make sense. I, I can see the benefit though. We, we've talked about like tells uh, sometimes the neck pulse tell we've seen in the poker meta conversation and the beard, or especially yours, definitely covers the neck pulse. The neck pulse, the swallow is something I look for a lot from people that don't have beards. And you're exactly right. I've, I've double checked it from multiple angles and you can't see it at all on me, which I'm, I'm very happy about because I sometimes, unfortunately, will make that tell. You know, that right there is interesting to me because... Your poker theory and your poker itself is so sound. And a lot of people who tend to go down the math route tend to uh, not put a lot of time into tells. And the fact that you look at tells, I find very interesting. When do those apply to your game? Regularly. So tells is kind of like a, it's a blanket statement term, right? Like it means a bunch of different things. Some people look at it from a purely physical thing i look at tells from both the physical stuff but also timing and really you're just looking for baselines and deviations and if you find deviations what do those deviations possibly hint towards timing is one of the biggest things i'm looking for there are lots of people that make time make decisions that they're comfortable with within a specific amount of time and when they're uncomfortable more often when they're bluffing or considering something like that all of a sudden their timing changes. And it might be just like a millisecond, might be a couple seconds. Live poker is a little bit weird because there's lots of different variables at play, but I'm always looking for tells and testing them as much as I possibly can. Because there's a bunch of information, especially small live games, live one, two, live two, five, even five, 10, lots and lots of tells at play. So you should always be looking for them. But I think for most people, they tend to put too much stock into tells and just ignore the math and the theory and the underlying strategy of the game. 
And I'd always say go the strategy side first, then add tells to your overall game plan rather than just rely on tells because I don't think that works. Here, we believe, and um, Jordan is a coach at School of Cards, and in there they believe the same thing, that tells are important, but tells will never make up for a flawed strategy. The strategy's got to be sound, the poker's got to be sound, and then you add in tells to, for them, situations where it might be close and it can make the decision there for you, or when it's an obvious tell, you can gain some EV. One of the things I want to talk about, way back in May, you came out with a tweet, and I'm going to read it here. The next time you get upset about something, ask yourself how far down the decision stream the problem is, and then reevaluate. That rang in my head for several days, <laughs> you know, because I think that it applies a lot to poker, but it applies a lot to life. What has a tendency to happen for a lot of us, and I'm going to get let, get your take on this, but when I was reading it, what I'm hearing is in in this statement, it's it's all about accountability. We're not pointing the finger at it's their fault that we're angry or it's this bad situation. What mistake did I make that got me to this point of feeling upset? And how do I reevaluate this introspective look at myself of how I'm going to do things different next time? Exactly right. And I think there's just, especially in our society right now, just too much finger pointing and shirking blame, shirking responsibility, as opposed to really looking at any decision, any consequence that comes up from that decision and really asking yourself, did I make proper decisions along the way? Were there improvements in the strategy that I could have made either way earlier in the decision stream or somewhere in the middle of the decision stream? It's just, it's too easy to point at someone else or something and say, well, that's the reason why things went bad for me. It's, it's lazy. And I think if we're going to hit any sort of like top tier at anything, be it poker, or literally anything, you have to be able to take personal accountability and you have to be able to look at the entire decision stream, not get focused just on results, good or bad. So is the intent of that to look for the root cause of the issue or to look where you started placing blame as opposed to taking responsibility, where you deviated from like this thing is happening to me to it's happening because of that other person versus what can I do to, to affect change? Pretty much both and everything in between those two things, right? Because you, you take any sort of action. Yeah, you make a decision and you can focus on the initial point of decision or you can focus on the point of result. But there are also typically in any sort of action that we make, there are lots of decisions along that entire continuum that got us from A to B. It's not just A to B, it's really A to Z and all the letters in between are also decisions that we made. And if we never go through and explore those or we only focus on Z, then we miss everything. And if we only focus on A, then we're shortchanging ourselves from the overall experiment because we're missing B through Y. No problem. So related to, to poker, what we find hard to deal with is you can make the right decision and things go wrong. You make the wrong decision and you win a pot. So it's not as easy as you get in a car accident and you call the police and they determine like this person's at fault for not using their blinker. It, it's much more clear cut for sure. So do you find that there's heuristics to help when thinking about uh, poker problems as far as determining root cause in that sense or determining like personal responsibility for decision makings for decision making? Very good question. I think as a pure default, you should always assume that you messed up. I think it's it's the safest because it's just too easy to shirk it and say, no, no, it's it's all luck. It's all variance. It's all someone else. It's all the dealer. It's all whatever. Come up with a billion other possible reasons. Always just default assume that it's your fault. And then if it's my fault, what actions did I make? And, and that's actually kind of the interesting thing about poker, right? Is take a basic hand. Even if you go from preflop to all the way to showdown, there aren't actually that many decisions that you make. Typically four, five, six, seven possible decisions, right? Maybe a couple preflop and then one or two on each postflop street. Like it's not that many actual decisions you make in a singular poker hand. So assume that you messed up on all of them and then just go back to the first one and say, okay, was this good or bad? And if you can't answer that question, then bring someone else in who knows better than you do or try to find an answer from someone who knows more than you do. And then once you're like, okay, cool, I'm comfortable with the prefop decision and maybe there's multiple prefop decisions, right? Maybe you open raise, that's step one, face to three bet. Now all of a sudden you're in a situation where you have another decision to make. Again, assume you messed up. 
check the entire decision and go forward from there. Pre-flop's easier because you're usually just talking about basic ranges, but post-flop, you know, there's so much nuance to it, but still assume that you messed up. I think it's a far safer model to go that direction than to take any other path. And as you go through that, because again, there aren't that many decisions along an entire poker hand that you could possibly make, then you can start saying, okay, I think that's good. That's good. That's good. Go forward from there. And then you can actually start to be able to discern what happened or what went awry. Maybe it's something you did. And if it's something you did, learn from it, move on. If it's something bad luck or whatever, okay, that happened. Suck it up. We're done here. Let's move on to the next hand. I think that when I'm listening to you here say that, what occurs to me is a couple of things. The first one being is some people are going to struggle with the notion of they messed up. They're going to struggle with it. They're going to have a hard time handling it. And the other thing that occurs to me is that some people are just going to assume they messed up and it doesn't matter if they messed up or not. They're going to focus on that. That's not always true. I think that when I'm hearing it, I, it's not that I disagree with you, all right? Because I don't want this to come off as me disagreeing with you. It's it's merely a language thing for me. And when I'm listening to it, I think that what's really important is it doesn't matter whose fault it is, all right? I can only control my decisions and my actions, yeah. whether it be at poker or in the world. I cannot control somebody else. So I need to go back and look at my actions and my decisions. And if they're right, that's okay. You don't always get the result that you were hoping for when you make a right decision. You don't always get the result you were hoping for when you make a right action. But I still need to examine what I can do differently or what I did right, as opposed to focusing on other people. So I really, I, I like that. I agree with you that the focus needs to be on ourselves as opposed to anybody else or any other events, because those are beyond our control. Yep, 100% agree with you. And Live poker is a little interesting, you know, tying back to what we were talking earlier about tells, because then you actually have another layer of possible things that you could have messed up on, or maybe you didn't mess up on, but influenced action in some way, right? Your action influenced your opponent to do something. Maybe you took too long. Maybe you swallowed in a weird way. Maybe whatever. You deviated in some way and they actually fed off of that. So now you have another layer of things that you can possibly start exploring. But I agree. I think at, at its most basest fundamental point, adopting personal responsibility for every single action you make is mandatory. And if you're not exploring every single action along the continuum through the lens of where could I have possibly made improvements, I think it's just too easy to fall into the trap of blame, blame, blame. I think especially for poker players, I mean, the majority of poker players are convinced that they're better players than they are, you know, and that they would only be able to win if everybody else would just respect their bets. Yeah, move up where they respect your raises, for sure. As far as the results go, I find that people still, though, they want to take responsibility for the good. So it's easy to get people to accept that you are not responsible for the negative results of a hand. If you, if you get it in with aces versus kings and they find the king on the turn, like it just happens, and people can accept that because it gives them kind of an excuse to be like, I didn't lose this hand. The cards lost this hand. But if they win, for sure, everyone still loves to be like, well, I played that perfectly. And the, one of the biggest turning points for me as far as mental game goes was taking a Zen-like approach to, I can't control the results, then neither negative or positive, I can't control either one. So I don't get credit for either. And the, the one thing I love about poker is Dell and I will have conversations about balance every now and then and not balance in like the GTO sense of, of range construction. But I find that I, I appreciate finding balance in all things in life. And like the balance there is if you don't get responsible, if you if you are not responsible for the negative, then you also don't get to claim responsibility for the positive. And I, after I thought about that, I started showing up to tables just being like, I'm going to play and let's see what happens. And I went from this like very arrogant mindset after winning a session of like, wow, I just won like a thousand bucks in two hours on the table. Like I'm so great to like, wow, I'm so grateful that poker let me walk away with extra chips today. Like it was a mind blowing thing. I didn't even realize it was happening until I just kind of like put it in a status update one time. I was like, so thankful that I won. And it was like, wait a second, didn't I do that? Wait, I actually didn't. Like I just facilitated it. That's an absolutely beautiful way of looking at it. And essentially all you're doing is you're adopting the, all I can do is come here and make good decisions. 
and I can't control actions. I can't control their reactions. I can't control anything other than my decisions. And as long as I do that, I'm happy. And that's kind of one of like my telltales of when it's time for me to quit a session, when I'm no longer feeling like I'm making good decisions. And it could be like microscopic. It could be like, I missed a $10 bet somewhere, or, you know, my bet sizing was just slightly off in a spot. That could be enough for me to say, eh, I don't think I'm making good enough decisions right now. I'm off. But everyone has to kind of come up with those, those personal rules for themselves and principles and stick to them, which is a whole nother layer of conversation of personal responsibility and self-discipline, but that's maybe for another day. I hate the word balance when it's applied to GTO and poker. And I, I think it's the second most misused and overused word in poker. Now I could be wrong. You know, I have a point here. It's going to segue for me. I tend to think more in terms of range protection as opposed to balance. I've gotten about halfway through your new book, GTO Poker Gems. And in there, I I really haven't heard a lot of people consistently use the term range uh, protection. And you do use it in the book very consistently. You also use balance in the book very consistently. And so let's say, let's just say that I am really struggling with this. How would you explain the difference between balance and range protection, one? And two, would you talk about your new book a little bit? Much appreciated on uh, on giving it a read, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you think after you read the last half of it. Essentially, what we need to think about, and like you mentioned, balance is a massively overused word, range protection a little bit less so, but as you get into more advanced circles, you start to see that terminology creep up a tremendous amount. Essentially, the thought process is, is to make sure that you don't ever end up in a situation where a range is completely screwed. So classic example of this is someone who three bets prefop and exclusively three bets queens plus. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, whatever. But if you exclusively three bet queens plus, then inherently when you call a raise in that exact same situation, you never have queens plus. Okay, fine. And that may not mean a lot to you right this moment in a prefop context, but take the person who will always check raise their sets on wet flops. And when they don't check raise, then inherently they are very, very capped off. They have no real range protection for very, very strong stuff, including sets and stuff, going into turns and rivers when they just take the check call approach on the flop. That's inherently a problem. It's not a problem when you're playing against bad opponents who aren't thinking about ranges and aren't really trying to assign much of a range to you. They're just more focused on their two whole cards and how those two whole cards interact with the board. But as soon as you start playing against players who are also thinking about ranges and also thinking about exploitation and also possibly even thinking about what does a GTO approach possibly look like in a situation like this, it does become more and more important. So you have to think about range protection from that point of view. And balancing is more just from the mindset of making sure that your ranges, especially your aggressive ranges, have a mixture of strong and weak stuff. If you are the kind of person who only ever bets on the river with strong hands, really never ever bluffs, well, you're completely imbalanced because it's incredibly easy to say that when you bet, you have strong hands. And when you check, you most certainly have weak hands because if you had a strong hand, you would have bet it. So that's an issue and very, very easy to beat you. Essentially just always fold when you bet unless they have something that's for whatever reason quite strong. And if they decide to check, well, chances are they're weak. And as such, you can ramp up your bluffing tremendously. So you've screwed yourself on balance and you've also screwed yourself on range protection. So that's how those two terms can kind of interact. Does that make sense? It does. I'm still going to struggle with the word balance. I understand that it is applicable and that it's correct in the way that you're using it. And that was one of the things that I'll say that as I was reading it, it's like, okay, this makes sense. This is a balanced strategy as opposed to this is range protection. You can tell me if I'm wrong. When I'm looking at it, range protection is part of a balanced strategy, you know, but when people say I'm balancing my range, no, you're using range protection as part of a balanced strategy is the way I think of it. Yeah, that helps clear up a lot for me because believe me, it's a difficulty. You can ask Jordan. I, we have arguments over this that, that have gone on for 30, 40 minutes in Slack groups. <laughs> so. Yeah, because the difficult thing with in the context of talking about poker theory is that you need to use words that people are just going to understand. And there's nuanced differences between the two, but you can almost use two terms interchangeably. But then if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, they actually mean two separate things. But for the sake of conversation, like you say something that you know, everyone's going to understand. 
you know, we're not, we might not be a good a, a fan of saying like someone suck out, but like, you know what I mean? They realize their equity or whatever, you know, we can get into the semantics of it. There are some interesting differences between like the two terms as far as application to what you're trying to do strategically. But I think the ways that you've uh, used it, Dell, are, are not like incorrect at all or super confusing. I think you're just trying to find concrete differences or unique differences between the two just for the sake of trying to compare them against each other. This is great because between the two of you, you guys can tell me if I'm right or wrong. But in my mind, when we say things like balance, we're going to balance our range here. What happens is, in my opinion, there are players out there that use that as an excuse to say, well, yeah, I'm going to play 7-4 off here because I'm balancing my range. No, you're playing a negative EV hand that is damaging your range. That's why these little nuances that some people think I'm a little too anal about, I, I pick at them for that reason, because it's fine if a player wants to go out there and play 7-4 off. And it's fine if they don't want to take the sound advice on how to do a sound range construction. That's great. We want those players out there. But if they're going to take the time to listen to this show, or if they're going to take time to listen to James, or if they're going to take and read James's books, then I want them to understand the difference. And maybe that's nitpicky, that's why I nitpick. You know, that's my thought process. And I hope that that's benefiting the people who listen. I think so. So I would say that the person who is caught playing 7-4 off and they say they do it to balance, like there's just some very clear fundamental errors there. And like, you're right, they're using it wrong in that sense. Hypothetically, let's say that their range construction consists of aces, kings, queen, ace, king, and then like 7-4 off and 6-7 suited. That's still very heavy towards value and in a lot of lower stakes games with like a value oriented mindset uh, playing a, a range like that you could still be quote unquote balanced in the sense that you have you still have more value than bluffs like you're still going to get caught with a trash hand seven four off but what you're not doing is allowing for the best return because seven four off is just not going to win as many hands as like maybe seven six suited if you chose to like balance in in the regard of using seven six suited but what people are doing is they're just playing hands. There's a different error there, which is just wanting to play too many hands and see a flop with too many hands. The concept is still kind of right. They're balancing in the sense that they're playing a hand that's not super strong for the sake of being able to get action when they do have strong hands, but they just have too many hands, period. So their their range is going to get caught in too many problems that they don't know how to solve yet. Exactly right. And there's something that happens when someone goes from being a complete, complete poker fish to starting to actually try to think about the game and maybe starting to try to conversate about the game. Maybe they join a Discord or, or just poking around on YouTube comments, whatever. And they start to realize, okay, there's, there's an importance on having a justification and a reasoning for all the actions that I'm making. Cool. Well, the easiest, laziest one we can throw out at any given time is I did this for balance. At any given time, you can throw that comment out and chances are you're not terribly off. Maybe it's the wrong hand selection, but, you know, maybe it was okay and maybe the solver will actually say it's okay 0.4% of the time. Now, is all of a sudden, is it all right? Good luck disproving them, right? So they kind of run into this, like, golden statement that they can always throw out of, oh, I do it for balance. Cool. What the hell does that even mean? So that's kind of like, when you find yourself saying that all the time balance, 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 or you find someone else saying that to you all the time, like push back, push back. That's almost certainly just lazy logic. And you're trying to find this golden bullet statement and it doesn't actually work. I think on the notion of finding good reasons for making those decisions, you, you do a great job in your workbooks of setting up spots for people to think through and come up with reasons for, you know, actions that they take. And I, I just like to take the opportunity to thank you personally for putting those workbooks out a few years ago. Well, it's like six years now. I'd gone back to New York. I got both of the workbooks. I worked through every single spot in them. Um, I was playing some home games in New York. I had mentioned in the other podcast, like I was going to a coffee shop and I'd, I'd do like two hours worth of work. And then I'd go to this uh, underground game that I was, I was helping out with. And I'd watch players for like six hours, just do stuff. And I'd be like, I just read about that. Or I just answered that question. Or like, this spot doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, I'm super glad that you're here just so I, I personally can thank you for 
putting that out there because it's one of the best opportunities to really like work on your game at not like a super high level. Like it's very accessible to every player. You're very welcome. And thank you for that. And that's exactly what I built those for, because I know sometimes one of the harder things when studying, especially because poker is just such a lone wolf game. Where do you even start when it comes to developing homework? Because no one really like throws that out there. It's not out there. So if you don't know where to start, I'm like, well, I can help with that, right? Because essentially all you need to do is organize where to start when it comes to studying. And that's why we did the handwriting workbooks first and then transitioned eventually into the pre-fop and math one and then the post-fop one after that. And I have a couple more in my brain that are cooking, but they're, they're still simmering. But essentially it's like, let's organize that. Otherwise you're just left to what? Try to review a hand on your own. And that can be extremely difficult, especially if you don't know where the heck to start or what's important or not important in a hand review. I'm glad it worked out for you and good job on doing the work, honestly. That, that's one of the harder things to do. Just dedicate the time and effort to doing it. So the workbooks are great, but I wonder if you get any backlash from friends of yours that have been poker pros, because that is part of the conversation at certain levels is, you know, tapping the tank. And how do you feel about, how do you feel about the content that you've put out there that, you know, everyone can watch and everyone can get better? How do you feel about the future of poker, you know, when everyone can just go look at your stuff and it's like, hey, everyone's getting better now? It's a really fair question. And in terms of looking at anything that where there's strategy involved, be it poker, be it chess, be it any sort of competitive video game. I mean, even take Halo Infinite, right? There are literally people out there that train on how to get better at that, either for competition or just to play better when they play on their own. If there is something where there is strategy involved, people are going to learn. And there are going to be people that can teach it well. There are going to be people that cannot teach it particularly well. There are going to be people with great strategies and people with horrific strategies. And hopefully you can find someone who teaches it well and has a good strategy as well. But obviously there's going to be a mixed bag of everything. So I think it's inevitable. You know, whether it's me, whether it's another coach, whether it's someone else in another timeline, I think either way it's inevitable that every single strategy game will eventually have education. And I think it's important that the education be taken with a level of gravity, because I think if you're going to teach someone, especially something that could impact them financially, and poker is beautiful because it impacts you not just financially, but also mentally and strategically and mathematically and like a whole bunch of different things that come from actually learning poker well. I think there's some real gravity that comes with that. And I do try to take that very seriously, whether it's writing a book or crafting a workbook or just putting a YouTube video together. I really try to make sure that there's always something that is going to help someone and not confuse someone, which is actually why I don't write as many books as I'd want to, because I could just, you know, pump them out. But the issue is I want to write things that are as timeless as possible. And if they're not going to be timeless, have very, very good specific reasons on why that is the case. So that's the way that I kind of think about it. But to your overall question, I do think inevitably where there's strategy, there's going to be educators. And I think that's, that's a good thing. Otherwise, you know, what, what was early poker like, right? Early poker, 2003, 2004, 2005. I mean, everyone's just literally scraping together as much as they could with poker stove and two plus two forum threads. Literally how a bunch of us younger ones were just trying to scrape it together at the time. But that's a beautiful thing. And then why just hoard that information? I know there are going to be people that say, well, I wish you would have hoarded it. But honestly, most people say, I wish I could have learned it. And then you'd stop offering it. And then you'd close it up. I understand that, but that's selfish. And that doesn't really function overall for actual poker society to work. So I don't know. Maybe I take it a little too seriously, but I think overall the ecosystem demands and deserves good education. Personally, one of the reasons why I'm happy that you're on this podcast today is I think there's this tremendous balance that you have between monetization and just plain doing good for others. Personally, I, I'm going to tell you my opinion on it is that it's never a concern. All right. If you look at the lower levels of poker, nobody's taking your stuff and applying it at the table. And the ones that are aren't going to be at the lower levels very long. There could be a lot of people who are upset about it, but the reality is it, it's unjustified because see it all the time. I've dealt with people who listen to this podcast and they say, yeah, I listen to your podcast all the time. Okay. Hey, and just the other day I was in this hand and I limped. Then you're not listening to my podcast. 
you might be listening to it, but you're not applying it. And that's going to be true of the majority of people, you know. So I can tell you that if you listen to this podcast, you're going to become a better player if you apply it. I can tell you that if you listen to your stuff on YouTube, you can be a better player, but only if you apply it. <laughs> if it's not being applied, it's not going to be any better. Exactly right. And that's, you know, to tie back to, to the workbooks is largely what I was trying to do with the workbooks is try to force that active learning and structured learning at the same time, because that's how you can really bridge from a theory to an application much, much faster. But if you're left to just crafting theory on your own, good luck with it. That's incredibly, incredibly difficult. And application with no theory, I mean, that's just having fun gambling with some cards. So some people play poker just for that. And that's, again, why poker is so beautiful, because there are so many different reasons to play this game. There are so many different reasons to study this game. There are so many different reasons to love this game. It's not like people are just here for any one reason. And that's, I don't know, I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's such a, a lazy excuse to say that the game is getting harder because people are out there teaching others. And I only bring it up because I've heard people say, like, you used to be able to just see bet, take down the pot. Now people are defending and, and it's getting harder to play against, you know, to win a hand. Like, you actually have to have something now. But with poker, everything is risk reward. If you're playing against people who maybe now are a little bit smarter, so to speak, like, you're just dealing with bigger pots. So maybe you win your hand less often, but like, you're winning a bigger pot when you do. And I find that when I play against uh, my friends, when I play against Seabass or Dell or whatever, you know, we're getting to the river a lot and there's some tough decisions, but those are some pretty big pots. And honestly, those are the ones that are more fun to play in than the ones where you just three bet, C bet and win. Exactly right. And it's when people have that conversation, you're exactly right. Typically what they're trying to say is it's not as easy to find the super outright profitable spot early in the hand that it used to be, right? It used to be you could just three bet preflop and you'd pick it up at like 80% frequency, not a problem in the slightest. And if that didn't work, whatever you see bet at 100% frequency for yourself and your opponent still folds like 70% of the time. Sure, life is incredibly easy when someone folds and they fold early in a hand. But like you said, them not folding doesn't mean all of a sudden profit is gone, just means you get to double barrel more. Congratulations, you actually get to win their preflop and their call c-bet a lot of the time. And you have to keep in mind that when people adjust, right, when they start, quote, defending more, it's almost always in the passive. You don't see a huge explosion in flop check raises. You don't see a huge explosion in turn over bets. Why? Because those are costly and active and people are just inherently risk averse and they don't want to do that. They're comfortable calling once. Okay, sure. I'll call once, whatever. That's nothing. So if more of the pool is designed to call one more time more often, or maybe call twice more often, doesn't guarantee they're calling all the way down. Definitely doesn't guarantee they're doing it properly. And it doesn't guarantee they're going to check raise you to all and make your life hell at any given point either. All it does is makes the game more interesting. It's boring as shit to sit around and just read that preflop and everyone folds. Or just raise preflop, get a bunch of callers, see that 100% frequency, people overfold and you pick it up. It's boring as heck. It's easy, it's profitable, but it's boring. Like the game is more interesting now. I don't know. I think that's a, a good thing rather than just hoping that it goes back to like 2005 levels. But does it work linearly? So if the game gets tough on the flop or like people can defend more and then you say, well, they still don't check raise enough, whatever, but now they start learning how to check raise and then they start learning to play the turn. Does it just invite the risk that in some X number of years, everyone's just going to know how to do everything by the river? It means that there will be an increase in the baseline of people's play, but it's not linear in the exact sense you're describing because there's a jump. The jump isn't how do I check raise the flop more? It's okay, I'm going to check call the flop more often than what I'm going to do on the turn, right? Or I'm going to see about the flop more often and they're going to continue more. Okay, fine. Now what am I going to do on the turn? It's always from the person who's defending more, it's they, they almost always just skip the aggressive action. And it's okay, I need to defend more, right? So when people started three-bending a lot more preflop and the natural strategic discussion changed to, okay, well, we can't just always fold against the three bets. Now we have to start giving action more often. Cool. Was the conversation, how should we four bet? Or is the conversation, how should I call the three bet and give action against a C bet in a three bet pot? That was the conversation. It wasn't, oh, okay, if I call this three bet, then how should I be raising the flop against that C bet, which is probably coming at a pretty thick frequency? It wasn't that. It was, how do I defend it? How do I flat it? The jump is almost always just pushed to the next street. 
continue the passivity to the next street. And then I'll try to figure it out. By that point, it's too late because you already effed up all your stuff. And now we're back to a conversation about range protection. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, to me, I, I don't think the game's getting harder at the lower levels. I think that, that that's a myth. And I think that to tie into what was just said, if you're playing too many hands and you're playing them hands passively, it doesn't matter if you're calling that flop bet. You still have too many hands in your range going forward to the turn. And therefore, you're still going to have to get rid of too many hands at one point. So you're not able to take and keep that nice, smooth pyramid. That brings us to this. I, the thing that might actually make the game more difficult is if people actually started playing the proper proportion of hands. Now, anybody listening to this show knows that I don't believe there's any reason not to have uh, known pre-flop ranges because it's it's that part. That's the one part we can say is solved, right, is what you should be playing pre-flop when you don't know your opponents. So that brings me to this. You guys at Red Chip Poker put out an app on pre-flop ranges. And I'm curious is because it's not a complete. It's not complete, is it? I mean, you guys adjusted that for simplification, correct? Couple points of of correction. Prefop is not solved. Um, prefop will probably, I don't want to say never. Never is a really, really hard word, but it will probably never be solved because the sheer amount of complexity, and I, you'll get to this in, in a later chapter of GTO Gems, but the sheer complexity to solve for prefop is staggering. Because it's not like solving a river situation where all you're doing is just factoring for all the possible options that are left given the stack depth and all the known cards are already out. When you're solving for prefop, you have to solve for the entire damn game tree. We created for the live GTO solve, which is getting added to the app shortly. That one was a pretty thick game tree. There were definitely simplifications for postflop because they're in here and they have to be simplifications for a postflop for you have to make post-flop simplifications in order to do a pre-flop solve. Otherwise, it would be too exhaustive. So we had, it said it exactly in the book, I'm off the top of my head, I believe it was two terabytes of RAM. RAM, not memory, not like storage, actual RAM firing 24-7 and then live GTO solve took, I want to say, three or four months to complete. Wow. <laughs> With simplifications, right? And like, because you have to. So if we try to just tweak one thing, let's just say we tried to add, I don't know, an extra flop sizing and an extra turn sizing, reasonable that that entire solve would then take a year. And that's still making the assumption that the game tree is rock solid. So my point being, prefop is not solved. It won't be, uh, I don't see it being solved in my lifetime. It's possible, but I don't see it happening. Just given the sheer number, amount of complexity that goes into it. So. All that being said, there are two different kinds of ranges within the app, technically three. There's the exploitative ranges, which are the ones where we essentially just said, hey, this is what you should play based upon what we think is best, our experience, what we've tested, what we've had other people test as well. This is going to be good for you. And the exploitative ones are largely based upon a model of you're playing in a softer game. There's really no reason for you to get nuts. Your chances are you're still working on your post-flop game a little bit. Just use the exploitative stuff. Keep life nice and easy make your preflop life more profitable. And as such, postflop will get a little bit better for you as well. Rock and roll. Then there's the GTO side of things. Now there are two different kinds of the GTO ranges. You have the simplified ones, which is where we take the raw GTO output and we start saying, okay, well, let's get rid of the mixes. Instead of having really complex mixes where you're going to play some hand 10.1% of the time and another hand you're going to play 4.2% of the time, let's just say it's going to be binary. You're either going to play the hand or you're not going to play the hand. So that's the way that the GTO simplified is run. So it's still based upon the solver output, but it's simplified and smoothed out across the cusps. And then we have the raw GTO stuff. And the raw GTO stuff is the exhaustive. It has all the mixes in it. But again, any prefop solve is only as good, and actually any GTO solve in general, is only as good as the solve uh, game tree that you create for it. If you mess up the game tree or you're lazy in the game tree or you oversimplify in the game tree, your results are going to be crap. So kind of got to keep that in mind. And that's why we try to be really transparent with what the GTO ranges are in the app. So that way there's no like, no, no, no. We're not saying this is the perfect end-all be-all perfect prefab solve. Doesn't exist. 
but this is best based upon these simplifications that we felt were reasonable based upon current dynamics and what we think is actually running right this moment. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. I think what Dell intends to ask is, uh, do you feel that people should be allowed to use that app, you know, in real time though? Definitely not. So I've explicitly stated this and I will continue to explicitly state it. I think that it is not a good thing to use. Don't use it in real time when you're playing online and don't use it at the tables when you're playing live. This is strictly an off table study tool. And it's actually something that we're very, very aware of as we're thinking about crafting the desktop version of this information, because we really do not want it to get hacked into and So it is 100% not meant for using in real time. It's a study tool. You start to memorize things the more you work through these things. I mean, honestly, you you go through ranges a couple different times, let's just say 15 minutes a day for a couple weeks. You're going to have most of the stuff pretty well memorized or have a really good baseline, infinitely better than your opponents who will never, ever consider doing anywhere near that kind of work. So I think having memorized ranges is better don't use it in real time. Like, I, I please, please don't. It's not what we created it for. We don't want people using it in that way. And I will continue to say that until I'm blue in the face. Now, on the notion of real-time coaching, you, know, you are still pretty active, right? You're out in the streets, on the tables, uh, on a pretty regular basis still? Playing, yeah. And most of the time when I play right now, yeah, it's for, for vlog footage. When you're at the table, do you get a lot of people asking you about hands? When you go to Showdown, do you have people asking if they made the right decision? Or how do you handle that? So if I were anyone other than me, I would typically not talk strategy at the table. I do try not to talk strategy at the table. But if someone really wants to and is asking an earnest question, I'll give an earnest answer. If someone's just trying to goof on me, I'll give the goofy answer like I would anyone else. Or if I was not known at the table, then I would do that. But it, it is a strange situation because you're always, right? It's, like, it's another layer that I have to consider when I'm at a table. So it's not just playing and monitoring my emotions and bankroll management, all that kind of fun stuff. It's like, I also have to worry about, does anyone know who I am? If yes, what is that doing? I represent poker to some extent. I don't think I'm important at all, but I understand that I am no, I think there's some responsibility that comes with that. Kind of go back to that poker ecosystem training, coaching question we were talking about earlier. Maybe I take it too seriously, but if someone's earnestly asking, yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll talk strat. I really will talk strategy 100%. I try to be more cognizant of it if it's the kind of table where strategy is not welcome, which is fine too. Sometimes I'll just step away from the table and talk with someone if need be. You're a much, much, much nicer person than me. I feel like that my response would be that I'm willing to take in, talk to you about it away from the table. Well, in my circle, you're definitely well-known and definitely super well-respected, but the traditional way to gain credibility in the poker world is like win a big tournament. And uh, people will notice if they search you up on Hen and Mob, you don't have a ton of tournament winnings. Now, we have a, a big listener, uh, Dan, out in uh, D.C. He loves to use the phrase, uh, friends don't let friends play tournaments. Is there any specific reason that you don't? Do you have like a hatred for them or you just feel like it's not a good return on your time? It's so tough because I know there are lots of people that will watch a video or two of mine, then look me up on something like Hendon and I have no results to speak of. And it's largely because I don't, like you said, I don't play tournaments. And I made that decision pretty consciously early on just because tournaments, they require so much about controlling my time, controlling my schedule. And if I want to be done with the session, I want to be done with the session. I don't want to have to oh, cool, I have to play this for another eight hours possibly. And that just sounds great. So it's really about just what works best for me in my life. And especially with children, like tournaments just don't function for me at the moment. Maybe I'll rotate back into them at some point. So I I get the allure. It is very, very inviting, but I just, my time just doesn't unfortunately allow for it at the moment. So James, you're a father, you're a a husband, and you put out this huge volume of, Material. In fact, so much so that I had trouble writing the outline for this because I was overwhelmed trying to figure out what things I wanted to pick. There's so much to choose from when it comes to your material. How do you put out so much material? How how do you manage your time and still be a good husband, be a good father, and a good bloke? Have time to play poker. I think 
not to, to borrow from the word that caused confusion earlier, but it's all about attempting to find balance. And I ebb and flow through this. I want to find balance in my life, which means, you know, cultivating a good team. We have a really good team over Redshift for that kind of thing, but I don't really have a good team for split suit. I just haven't like expanded my team out in that respect. So that takes up a lot of time and kind of gets the balance out of whack a little bit and family ebbs and flows, right? Sometimes family needs me a lot more and other times family needs me a little bit less, just kind of depends on the homeschooling stuff and exactly what's going down right that moment or what challenges are, are coming up. I have two children, one on the older side who's 18 and then one on the younger side who's now two and a half. So kind of both both poles and it's just kind of wherever focus and attention needs to be, that's where I'm going to put it. So if you watch my YouTube channel very carefully, you'll notice that there are times when I'm just not releasing weekly. And that's usually because I have other stuff that needs to take priority. And I think being okay with that and not beating yourself up over it, but also being very, very disciplined is important. I wake up at four in the morning every day, and that allows me a lot of extra hours in a day in order to get the stuff accomplished. And also sometimes be able to get out of the office by eight or nine in the morning, spend more time with the family, whatever needs to get done. So I think as always, just really, really analyze your current situation and see if there's any little ways that you can tweak it and optimize things. And just don't let yourself get to the point of burnout. I think that's kind of one of the biggest things. Well, I, I don't know what else to ask you about, James. Um, there is a lot that I could ask you about, Cora. I could ask you about red chip poker. Is there anything specific you want to share with our listeners? Nothing specific. I mean, I really would love to hear what you think about GTO gems by the time you're all done with it. So if you want to circle back on that later, I would love to hear that. And if you're anyone listening is interested, you can check it out on Amazon or redshippoker.com slash gems to learn more about it and pick up a copy. But ultimately, that that's it's been a very fun book. And it's one where I suspect one of the things you're running into is somewhat to do with the jargon and really making sure you nail in on the definitions, things like balance and range protection. But I think it's also partially because you're trying to figure out exactly where and how does it apply, right? Because these are terms that get thrown around a lot. And the more and more you start diving into solver work or GTO conversations, you just start hearing these words and you're like, does this even like apply anywhere? It seems fun in theory, but and honestly, like a lot of the YouTube comments right now are like, this seems good in theory, but I don't know what the hell to do with it read the book first and foremost, that will help. But essentially it's like, don't get bogged down with it and understand that exploitative is still the name of the game. It's not that you're going to be a GTO robot overnight. It's not the point. And in fact, because it's literally impossible for you as a human, me as a human, any of us as humans to do it. So that's inherently cannot be the point in, in the goal at the end of the thing. I'd say my three favorite GTO works all say the same thing. Um, well, I, I, let me back up a little bit. My two favorite, and I'm working on a third one now. We'll see if it's my favorite when I get to the end. All, they all say the same thing, right? They say you it's impossible to play GTO perfectly. You can't do it as a human being. You're not a computer. And they all say that the point of studying GTO is to learn how to exploit your opponents. I think that we were talking earlier, and I mentioned Andrew Brokus's, uh Play Optimal Poker. I did not mention this one, but The Modern Theory of Poker. These books both say that. Your book says it. I think that there's this progression towards more and more simplification on the application of it. And, and that's what's needed at this point. What has a tendency to happen when people start thinking about GTO is they tend to try and overcomplicate their strategy and their game. And I think that so far, like I said, I'm only about halfway through, but so far it seems like this is going to be a great way for for people to read it and add some simple applications to their game. And that's definitely the goal. And to really walk away with some like macro level ideas, right? Cause I think it's really easy when you start, if you like just pull up a GTO solver and try to do analysis on literally any given spot, it's so easy to dive in and zoom in and get really micro. And all of a sudden you see people arguing and quibbling over, Oh, why is the solver really liking this particular combo, which has a club, but it doesn't like this particular combo that has a heart. And it's like, Okay, if we're getting that level of micro, chances are we're missing the big picture here. So that's really what we were trying to do with GTO Gems. And one of the biggest ones is a lot of people will make an argument for they're going to use one bet size and they're going to balance that out perfectly, right? They're going to use one bet size with their big hands and the same exact bet size with their small hands. And as such, they are perfectly balanced. Well, 
According to GTO, that's actually 100% false. You actually need multiple bet sizes. It's mandatory to actually be balanced. These are the little things that we're trying to leverage from the years of solver exploration into real takeaways like that, getting away from these myths that are just completely, completely wrong. That, yes, you're not going to be playing perfect GTO by the time you read the book. That's literally not the point. The point is to understand the macro level ideas that you can actually put into your overall strategy today rather than get bogged down in either myths or just selling you crap, telling you you're going to be perfect GTO at the end of it. You're not. It's not the point. And if you think that, I'll give you your money back. If you bought it by accident thinking that was the case, let me know. I'll, I'll give you a refund immediately. Not a problem. Yeah, I don't think you shouldn't have too many people asking for refunds. I think that one of the things that I forgot to mention in my opinion on it is that there's a lot of explanation as to why the solvers say what they say. And there's a lot of books. So the solver says this, okay, but there's not a lot of, but this is why the solver says that. You know, I'm seeing that and I'm happy about that. And I'm very excited because what's happening is there's this, there's still this amazing evolution that's going on in poker. It's one of the things that's so beautiful about the game is that it's still a lot to learn, you know, and it's going to be different things to learn next year than this year. So it's, it's awesome in that sense. Jordan, you have anything? If we could back up just a little bit, I was wondering if you could give us kind of a brief overview of how you got started playing. I'm always interested in you know people's in players' background. I'm always interested in a player's background, what got them interested in the game and, and what motivates them to keep going, especially someone at your level who is obviously motivated to continue to learn more. And you've mentioned recently on your vlog that you're going to be playing some higher stakes. I was curious if you were trying to get up to like high stakes nosebleeds or you just meant you were increasing the stakes that you're currently playing. Just to, to clarify, just to make sure there's no confusion. Um, in terms of the vlog stuff, we are moving up from one, two. I told myself we we're going to do 10, 10 sessions at one, two, and then we're going to move up in the vlog because I, I normally play two, five and then some five, 10. So I'm, I'm not moving up to like high, high stakes by any stretch of the imagination, but we are moving up to two, five for the vlog. And then I'm sure eventually there will be five, 10 in there as well. But for, for the moment, we're going two, five next. Uh, in terms of when I first started out, I, I really have the same boring story that everyone does. Moneymaker won a tournament. And then I started playing online poker. I was in college at the time. So uh, I was very lucky because a lot of my friends also started playing online and were actually very serious about really studying and trying to figure this game out a little bit more. So that was like a large chunk of my college was just playing poker, thinking poker. Literally, I would spend any little bit of time that I actually went to class was spent literally trying to like break down hand histories as best I can and crafting out like future win rate possibilities and potentials. That's the way that I spent most of my classroom time. So I didn't have the best grades, but ended up finishing. And as soon as I did that, I went right out to Vegas. A lot of my friends had actually dropped out of college to go out there. So it was just the natural place to go to next. About halfway through college, I want to say probably my junior year, give or take, I started having some people ask me if I would coach them. And I really liked teaching. I always kind of thought I was going to get into teaching later in life, like maybe go back and teach college courses or something. And I was like, well, this is kind of a nice way of kind of bridging those two things. I really like teaching. I really like helping people out. And I really like poker. So sure, started doing that. And then started doing a lot of coaching. I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. So now what do I want to do? Because every hour you spend coaching is an hour you don't spend playing. And because I'm a massive introvert, it really, an hour of coaching takes me a half hour of warm up on the front end and a half hour of cool down on the back end. So take your hourly rate, cut it in half. And it's like, this is really, really tough, but I really, really love it. So what's kind of the best way that I can like bridge all of this together? So that was playing about half the time, coaching about half the time. And then I started playing about a third, coaching about a third and doing like training material about a third. And that was kind of the balance that I really ended up liking a tremendous amount. So from there, I wrote Dynamic Flow Ring, and then everything just kind of like catapulted from there. That was kind of like my my first foray into actually writing. Book took me a very long time to do, but was definitely definitely worthwhile and really forced. One of the things I love about teaching is it forces you to figure out what the hell you suck at because you're going to figure out very very quickly. Someone's going to start poking and prodding you with questions. You're like, I don't know, man. And I don't ever want to lie to someone. So I have to literally say like, I don't know, uh, give me a couple of days and I'll get back to you. I need to do some serious research and, and tacking along in here. 
And I did that quite a bit in the beginning with coaching. So while writing the book, it really forced me to like start digging into some of these parts of my game that I really didn't have as nailed down as I wanted to. And actually, if you read the book very, very carefully, you can find there's an area of my game that I still needed a tremendous amount of work on that I just kind of like glossed over in a couple of different spots. I'm not going to name it, but if you, if you end up finding it, let me know. I really like that balance of some coaching, some playing, some writing or training, some material. Yeah. And that, that was kind of what I did for, for a while. I really never had aspirations of playing like super, super high stakes. I enjoy watching them, but I recognized early on, I don't have, I think you have to have something mentally to do that. I'm very, very strong mentally, but there are certain things with like money detachment that it would take me probably two or three years of really solid work to get to the point where I have the monetary detachment that is required for that. And then the question is, do I want to sink years into that as well as years into after that, you leveraging that skill in order to play high stakes for a serious amount of time? I don't know. At this point in my life, definitely not. Maybe in my early 20s, you could have convinced me one way or the other, but not like I didn't have a conversation in my head at, in my 20s and I didn't pull the trigger. So chances are, yeah, probably couldn't have convinced me to. I, I like the balance that I chose. I, I really would have hated to have to do that much traveling. I, I don't. I'll travel, but I don't like love, love traveling like that to try to find what, like 30, 40 games per year. I don't know. It's, it's a lifestyle and you have to be fully, fully committed to it. And I just never made the decision to commit to it. So a couple of things stand out to me there. And we have really, we've taken up a lot of your time and I don't want to take up too much more, but uh, one popped out to me. That's very important because I'm kind of an introvert and I'm an introvert. That's hard for people to recognize because I'm an introvert that presents as an extrovert. And you must be the same because I would have never guessed you being an introvert with all the material you put out there. And how do you deal with that in playing poker? Because I know that I can sit there. The funny thing is, it's really weird. I can go to a function of friends and I'm very limited. I've got maybe an hour or two. I'm very uncomfortable. People in my space. Uh, the worst one is Trader Joe's. My wife loves Trader Joe's. Every time I walk into Trader Joe's, son about the people who shop at Trader Joe's. They have got to get in my space. And I can't tell you, there's so many times my wife sees it on my face. She hands me the keys. Hey, just go wait in the car and I'm out of there. How do you deal with that at poker? Because at poker, it's easy for me because I can focus on the game. And I don't know if that's the same for you, but that is my focus. There's so much for me to focus on. I don't notice the guy that's man spreading next to me that's got to be in my space. You know, I don't notice the waitress coming up behind me asking me if I want to drink. How's that work for you? I don't really run into the the personal space issue all that much. And maybe that's just because I'm, I don't know, with the beard, people just give me a little bit of distance. Another uh, another upside of having a, a big beard, I suppose. But it's it's the social it's the socializing. It's the the nonstop feeling like feeling like you need to fill infinite small talk is death to me. It's it's I hate it. I absolutely hate it. And if we want to have a meaningful conversation, that is much less energy draining. But if I need to manage like a dumb small talk conversation with someone for hours, which is sometimes what poker tables lead to, those those are very short sessions for me. That might be a two and a half hour session. And even if it's an hour drive to get there, I'll just go home because it's not going to be worth my time. It just, it will frustrate me too much. I'll be too tired. It's not, you know, I still have to wake up at four in the morning the next day. So not going to happen. Eh, the rest of it, I mean, as long as the table isn't like focused on me too much, I'm usually okay. I usually will have a, a five or six hour session in me, but as soon as that small talk begins, and I probably shouldn't say this because now people are going to start peppering me with small talk during sessions, but oh well. <laughs> I, I'm okay as long as it's not that. I will promise I will never use that as an advantage against you if we should ever be fortunate enough to play against each other. I don't think we'd have small talk. I think we'd have we've had bigger talk to have, and and as such, I'd be okay. <laughs> I have not asked everything I want to, but I do not want to take up any more of your time. Jordan, do you have anything more to ask him? No, I don't. Uh, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you again for, no for coming. Thanks on. for having me. We're truly honored to have you and your beard on this show. And feel free anytime you want to take and be part of a podcast. Feel free to message me. You are one of the people that I will say gets an immediate move to the top of the list. I massively appreciate that. Well, if you ever want to have a weird conversation about scripture, you let me know. We can have that conversation on the podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, James. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. This has been Stealing the Blinds, a weekly poker podcast for students of the game by students of the game. When you're not stacking your chips, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. 
recommend the show to your favorite donkey, fish, or whale, and head over to tbstv.com support to show the crew some love. Until next week, stick to the plan, and may all your variants be positive. <laughs>